0: Uh, about a, a kind of a touchy subject. It, you know, in fact, it's a subject that uh, is often difficult, even in Christian circles. And the subject matter isn't something that's a hot-button topic in politics or in uh, social justice or, or whatever else. It's something that's been difficult since the beginning of time. That subject is forgiveness. Pastor Brandon last week commented that uh, often preachers say, if I were to title this sermon, but we actually do. Uh, So the title of my sermon, I'm not going to say if I were to title, I actually did. Uh, The title of the sermon is God wants me to do what? Because often we really love to think about forgiveness as something we receive from God, or maybe we receive from others but I'm not sure we really love the idea of giving forgiveness. We kind of like to hold a grudge. We like the idea of someone else paying for what they've done to us, maybe seeking a little bit of vengeance or slipping in some, some sideways statements every once in a while to get back at them. It's an easy thing to slip into. Forgiveness is, is a very difficult subject at times. So today we're going to look at... Uh, a single verse as sort of our main verse, but I'm going to try to present a, a sort of systematic view of forgiveness in the New Testament. It's not going to be comp- comprehensive, I admit, uh, but I'm hoping that I can bring this to you in a way that's helpful. It that helps you to look at forgiveness maybe a little differently than you have in the past, and that maybe will help you to, to see ways that you can forgive that are, that are helpful and good uh, and godly. So today we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verse 32, just one verse. And in fact, we're only going to really pay attention to the ending of that verse. But we're going to go ahead and stand for this whole verse anyway. Go ahead and stand with me if you can. Um, If you can't, that's okay. We stand for the word of God in this church because we recognize that it is different from my preaching. My preaching is fallible, but this is the infallible word of God. And so we stand in respect. Again, Ephesians 4, verse 32. It reads this way, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. I pray, Lord God, that this morning you would help us to see clearly how you have forgiven us, that Lord, we might bestow upon others the same kind of loving, tender, merciful forgiveness that you have given us. Lord, let us not be hard-hearted and so prove that we are not of you. But Lord, help us to walk in forgiveness toward others, proving, Lord, that we have received forgiveness from you. I pray that you would help us to experience the assurance that comes when we extend forgiveness to others. That you would help us to see that, Lord, you are working in us as we have the freedom and ability to forgive We thank you, Lord God, for this, and I pray that you would correct us, help us, and help us to embrace the love that you have commanded us to give to others. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys can be seated. So the first thing that we need to kind of talk about here as a foundational idea isn't just forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because forgiveness requires that something be forgiven. Something has to be forgiven. What is that thing then? We have to ask that question first. Before we can get into how God forgives, how we should forgive, we have to understand how God or what God forgives when he forgives a sinner. And that's the important part. God forgives sin. But what is sin? Sin is doing what God forbids or neglecting that which God commands. It's doing what God forbids or neglecting that which God commands. That is sin in a nutshell. There may be more full-featured definitions of these things, but I like that definition because it covers both the, the doing and the lack of doing. And so this is the definition that we're going to work with today as sin. Sin, though, is an interesting thing because it's not simply a wrong being done. It is also a debt. Sin is almost always referred to as a debt when we see it in the scriptures. Matthew 6.12, this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. After that even, it's rephrased, trespasses. It's one and the same. Debt is sin, our sin is debt, sorry. The idea here is that when we sin, when we do something that is against what God commands or we neglect something that God commands, then we accrue a debt to God. It goes against our account. It brings us into the red. Likewise, when we sin against one another, it brings us into the red with one another. There is damage done. It's a let me just hammer this home with uh, Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. I'm going to do a lot of Bible calisthenics today. I don't know if you want to do those with me or not, but uh, you can if you so desire. Otherwise, they're up on the screen, or at least they should be. I think I put them in. So Jesus, uh, in in Matthew 18, 23 through 35 he says therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents by the way a talent is an incredible amount of money unfathomable and then he it says that he owed him 10,000 of these units of money it was the largest unit of money that you could have in the in the ancient world okay says, he owed him 10,000 talents and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Again, we're still talking about debt here in this parable. But when that servant came, same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which by the way, was about a hundred days wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So all of these things, we like, we see this parable, it's, it's this parable, it's a story about debt. It's about monetary debt. And then Jesus drives it home and says, that's sin. When you, when you look at this, you, you see that he's comparing this monetary debt to what, we ha- what happens when we sin against God. It's a heinous thing. And think about this. When we think about how, like how much debt a sin is, how much debt am I accruing if I sin against God or if I sin against someone else? How much debt am I really accruing? Well, I think this is an easy way to, to think about it, I hope. Think about stealing a car. Say I stole your car. I'm not going to steal your car. If you're new here, I'm sorry, I'm not going to steal your car, okay? I'm not, it's not that kind of church. But say you stole a car. I, 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 say I stole your car, okay. W- what happens there? Well, not only, like, you, you've lost a car. You've lost a good, an item, right? That used to be yours. You, you, there is a, a hole in your net worth. It has gone down by a certain amount. I don't know how expensive your cars are. Maybe it's a couple grand. Maybe it's several thousand. Maybe it's tens of thousands. But you've lost that value in your overall net worth, right? But that's not the only thing that's happened, in fact, you've lost time with that vehicle, right? You could have driven places, but now you can't. You've either got to buy a new car immediately, but even if you can buy a new vehicle within the next hour, you've lost an hour of, that, of time with that vehicle that you once had. Say I drive it around for about 100,000 miles. Now you've lost out on maintenance. You've lost uh, on convenience, In fact, it's almost impossible just from stealing a car, just from stealing a small, comparatively small thing from you, it's impossible for me to really pay you back for what I've done to you. Like, truly, I can't just give the car back. I can't just give the car back and pay for maintenance because I can't give you the time back. And that's just talking about a small, insignificant thing called a vehicle, a car, I use this example because it's, it's less emotionally charged. When you think about assault or murder, things like that, those sorts of heinous sins, you can't just, even if that person could come back to life, you can't heal that emotional damage that's been already done. Right? The, like The debt that's accrued when sin happens is far more than just the value of the thing. Now think about that in terms of of you, right? Like like I said, you know, you start accruing like negatively, you know, all of these things that you've lost, that someone owes you. Now think about how our sins compare to an infinitely holy God. Every single small sin is punishable by death because he is infinitely holy. He is infinitely perfect. Sin is a debt that we cannot repay. It is an affront to who he is, not just something that we've taken from him. No, this is something that is against his very nature. It is repugnant to him that we would sin against him. And so we owe him a debt we cannot ever repay by any act. It's it's an interesting thing. This isn't in my notes, but I'm just gonna harp on it for a minute. A lot of people seem to, to think that when they get saved, they then spend the rest of their lives paying back what God has done for them. You can't. You can't. It is impossible for you to pay back whatever it is that God has done. Now, you may do this out of thanksgiving. You can respond in obedience out of thanksgiving, but you cannot pay God back for what he does. That's why it's called grace. I want to not hammer too hard on the definition of sin and how horrible our sin is. We, we talk about this a lot. You know, this is, this is a Reformed church after all. <laughs> I feel like Reformed churches like to talk about sin. We like to go, oh, like, everyone is the worst of sinners. And, like, and so you're, I think that if you've been around for a little while, you know these things. If you haven't, you should know this, that we harp on sin a lot because we see it as being infinitely terrible. No matter what size sin we're talking about, no matter the level of heinousness that we're talking about, it's an affront to God, and that's a a terrible thing. One other thing I'll I'll comment on here before we move on to the idea of forgiveness um, is that because forgiveness requires the debt of sin and God cannot sin, there is no such thing as you forgiving God. I understand the therapeutic value of saying, I, like, I, I thought that debt, the, the debt had been accrued to me, that God had sinned against me somehow, had, had made my life more difficult than it should be somehow, and therefore I forgive him. I understand the therapeutic value of this, but when we're talking about forgiveness as a theological construct, God, it is impossible to forgive God because God does not accrue debt against you. He never sins. And so again, if we're going to use a tight theological definition of forgiveness, then we must say that God cannot be forgiven because there is nothing to forgive. Don't get me wrong, he may not ever, always do what you want. And your life may be difficult, but God doesn't requ- require your forgiveness. You actually need to repent and trust him as your loving heavenly father. Yes, you should let it go, but it's not forgiveness. It's a shift in your perspective of who God is. It's understanding that he's your your, your heavenly father who works all things for good, even the worst of situations, even the most terrible circumstances. And that at the end, you will see that it was all for good. It's a hard thing to say when you're suffering, I know, but we shouldn't play into the idea that we need to forgive God just because it's difficult to understand his providence. Anyway, that's, that's all on the side. So while God cannot, cannot be forgiven in a technical sense, he certainly does forgive though, right? God absolutely forgives. Again, back in our, our passage, forgive one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is really like, I I wanted to spend a couple of minutes just sort of pulling this apart a little bit. And and I don't know how much of this you guys want or need, but I'm going to try to keep it concise. When this phrase is uttered, when it's written in the scriptures, there are important pieces of this. Forgive one another. That's an important command. Let's set that aside for just a moment because there's an as. As. What is an as? Well, if you, if you remember from grade school, this is a simile, right? It, it ties two things together. It's, it's like saying like or as, like, or, or yeah, things of that nature, right? So it's linked. So we forgive how? Qualitatively, how do we forgive? As God in Christ forgave us. Ooh, that qualifies things a little bit all right? It means that we first need to understand how God in Christ forgives us before we can actually forgive one another the way that we should, the way that we are commanded. And so for the bulk of this sermon, I really just want to talk about how God forgives and then how that relates to how we forgive one another. Does that make sense? Interestingly though, forgiveness I, I was I was working on this sermon I was thinking about this construct of, of forgiveness and how it relates to different pieces of God's grace and mercy toward us. And I was trying to come up with this super tight theological system whereby I could say, well, first there's grace and then there's mercy and then there's forgiveness. And forgiveness is is conditional and transactional, but there's these other things that go on over here. And I wanted to lead you through this journey of redemption. But to be honest with you, after surveying what's going on in the New Testament when forgiveness is is spoken about, it's not about this tight little theological box. It's about a whole system of things. How does God forgive us? Well, it's not just about the forgiveness. It's about what leads him into the forgiveness. So where does it start? It starts with love. God loves. How does God forgive he loves first john 4 9 through 10 if you don't mind sir thank you in this the love of god was made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins i love that word propitiation we won't get into it today but it's a good one it's this exchange that happens What does it say? God loved us first. How does God forgive? He loves. He loved us when we were unlovable, when we were still belligerent in our sin against him. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, it says in in Ephesians 2. But he loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross that we could be saved. He loved us. Matthew 5:44 through 45 gets at this idea for us. If God loved, so we must also love. It says, "But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven." For he who makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the un- unjust. What does he say here? Love your enemies. If you were once enemies of God, and I know you were. If you're, if you're a Christian today, you were. If you're not a Christian today, I'd say you are an enemy of God. But perhaps because you're here, I can say that he loves you enough to present the gospel to you, the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And if you have faith in him, then there is eternal life for you. Man, but he loves us and he commands us to love our enemies even when they are our enemies. Not when it's convenient, not when it's helpful for us, not when it's, it's good or right from our perspectives, but just love our enemies. I love that he qualifies it too though. It says, and pray for them, but pray for those who persecute you. I love that. Because not only do you love them, maybe in a practical sense, but you must love them enough to pray that God would convict their hearts and bring them to a knowledge of him. I might reference this later, but this is a, uh, it's an interesting thing that happens uh, on the cross. Actually, I do think I reference it later, but um, when Jesus is on the cross, he he, he's hanging there and he says, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are the people who are killing him and he's praying for them. And interestingly, he's not standing there saying, your sins are forgiven. He's praying to the heavenly father that he might come convict them of their sin and that they might come to a saving knowledge of who he is. Wonderful thing. He's actually praying for them on the cross. It's, he is loving them, not by br- brushing over their sin and going, nah, no big deal. He's saying, no, it's a huge deal. Father, bring them to repentance that they might be saved. Forgive them by the only means that anyone has ever been forgiven, the blood of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the cross, there's, this is the, uh, another Sort of good way to think about how God loves or how God forgives is that he forbears and gives graciously. Romans 2, let me see if I can flip there. Romans 2, 4 through 5. If you want to flip with me, you can says or do you presume on the riches? of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, the re- to repentance. But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse four again, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance. He forbears and he gives graciously. Even while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. As if it was hard enough that Jesus says, love your enemy. Now we see that God forbears and gives graciously and kindly to us, even while we are enemies of him, even though we are sinners against him. He gives to us. Man, this is hard stuff. If you think about people who have hurt you in your life and you're like, I have to love them. Wait, I I not only have to love them in a sort of emotional, choicy sort of way over here, but like I actually have to do kindness to them. I'm commanded to do this. Yes, because think about how wretched of a sinner you were in God's eyes and how wretched that person is in your eyes. Maybe, maybe your kindness, your mercy will lead them unto repentance. Maybe God will use that. The the reality is that our kindness often serves to lead people to repentance by presenting a counterpoint to their evil. Jesus uh, commands us uh, in in another place where he says, if someone strikes you on your cheek, turn to them the other. If they sue you for your cloak, give them your tunic as well. If they tell you to go one mile, walk two. I I don't want to have time to get into all the different details of those particular sayings, but consider that the one person was doing the wrong, and the other person says, the, the Christian says, but I'm going to do you one better. He doesn't get back. He doesn't get even. No. He says, here's something more. You want to sue me for whatever it is that I've got? Take it. I give it willingly. Here's something else. This room got real quiet. That's what Jesus presents as As Christian justice, as Christian love and forgiveness. And again, this is even before repentance is had. This person may be belligerently unrepentant. And we're commanded to love and to give graciously. He also chooses to forgive us even before we repent. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, again, still in our wretched state, God chooses and foreordains is the word that I originally had in here. He ordains to forgive. He opens the path. This is what I think most people actually think about as forgiveness these days. Not many people go much further than this. Perhaps they do the first two, maybe they don't. But they, they say, like, well, I'm not going to pursue vengeance in my heart. I'm going to relieve them of the debt in my heart. Well, it's a wonderful thing. That's, where, like, it's a, that's something we should do. God does this. He says, I will ordain to forgive them, but even before they are going to come to me in repentance. Maybe in our hearts we need to start letting go of some things where someone has wronged us and we need to say, I'm not gonna heap sin on top of sin. You know that little thing in you that creeps up when someone has sinned against you that maybe they've done terrible wrong to you, right? And, and you, that thing that creeps up that goes like, if I could just like sneak in a little sin against them to like kind of jab them, maybe I'll gossip about them a little bit. Maybe I'll just air all their dirty laundry over here. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stand up and, and, and talk about all the bad things that they've done in their life that they've confessed to me over time. Maybe if somebody has betrayed you, you go to your friends and the, those closest to you and you go, hey, guess what? You know what they did? This is what happened. Heaping sin on top of sin. No, we need to choose to, we need to foreordain for to forgive. We need to go ahead and, and let go of that. We need to go like, I, I, I recuse myself of my right to vengeance in any form. But this is sort of a mental or or emotional exercise, isn't it? Like first and foremost. And often we don't get much further than this. As I was preparing this sermon, um, my own personal history sort of was in the forefront of my mind considering those who have hurt me in the past, who have betrayed me uh, as a friend, and I, I, I thought I had a, a good theology of forgiveness because I stopped here. I said, I won't go after them. I won't, I won't heap sin on top of sin. I won't, I won't do that. But I, I actually said this out loud. But if they came to me, I would, I would tell them they were forgiven. I would say, look, I'm not gonna pursue any debt against you. But I would never have a relationship with that person again in no way like, was that reconnected. I wouldn't go after them, but there is no way that that bridge was coming the other 50%. Now, I admit that in, in some grievous circumstances, like this is, a, this is a touchy place to be. And I think there's some ways to, to do this accountably, but when we're just talking about uh, sort of raw relational kind of stuff... That's not a good place to stop because that's not where God stops with us. He doesn't stop with us at, well, I'll forgive your sins, but you know, like a relationship with me. No, none of that. I'm not going to reconcile I'm not even going to try to reconcile to you. You can just go over there and play in your corner. I'll play in my corner and we will never meet. That's not how God forgives. It's actually not how God forgives. In fact, he adopts us as sons and daughters because God reconciles us to himself when we repent. I want you to write that down, file it in the back of your brain. God reconciles us to himself when we repent. This is the theologically tight definition of forgiveness that I really wanted to talk about today. Because... Up to this point, it's more planning to and having a gracious, loving, merciful attitude towards someone else. But this is real forgiveness. This is forgiveness in full, right? So you can have partial forgiveness where I, I won't pursue any sort of vengeance, but a refusal to try to reconcile after repentance is had. That's, you can't, you can't do that. You, have, you can't stop there because that's not how God forgives so like I said, the, this idea of reconciliation is really the hard definition of forgiveness because in this moment, much like in Matthew 18 where the, uh, the, the servant comes and, and prostrates himself before the king and, and he says, I, I'll pay you back, I promise, I'm sorry. I, I will pay you back and the king has mercy on him. It's, it's transactional at that point. Now the king had planned to, be willing to, to forgive this debt. And then the, the, the servant comes and he says, master, I'm sorry. And, and he says, paid in full. This is how God actually forgives. Like I said, forgiveness uh, ultimately is a transactional thing. It's saying your debt is forgiven, but it requires, and, and I, I'll put this out there as a, as a one-off statement, full forgiveness is conditional. It's, it requires repentance. Because full forgiveness means reconciliation of some kind. It means reconnection. It doesn't mean that there are no consequences. In fact, uh, I, I owe a great debt to, uh, to a couple of, uh, of men who uh, wrote books and, and preached sermons on this. Uh, Kevin DeYoung and Chris Braun's Um, Chris bronze actually, uh, defines forgiveness more narrowly than I have today. Again, it's this sort of tight definition says a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously, the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. Although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously, the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. We need to have repentance in order to find the fullness of forgiveness. You think about this in the uh, what in Reformed circles we like to call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. We start with God predestining, moving through to to election and to uh, and to effectual calling and to regeneration, where we are are made new creatures. But between regeneration and justification, something happens. There is a means by which we go from 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 that regeneration to justification, and that's faith. Everything is founded upon God's mercy, but that. That gap right there is faith. That's the means by which God justifies us. What is faith then? Faith is two things. It's trust in Jesus Christ, but it's also repentance from sin. It's two sides of the same coin. You have to know your sin in order to believe in Christ. And so, when you do that, then you are justified. Now, again, as as good Reformed people, we, we will say that that is necessarily the case for everyone who is elected by God. But That's a whole different conversation. We'll get there some other day. But I will say that God predicates his forgiveness upon faith and repentance. And so we do the same in that at the end of the day, reconciliation can only be had when someone comes to you and says, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And as a Christian, you are told, yes, you will forgive them. If you've been forgiven so much, then you can forgive just about anything. And by just about, I mean everything. As someone who has been given so much grace by God, yes, you can forgive and you will forgive because God has given you so much. We can be said to forgive when we give up our pursuit of vengeance or repayment, but the completion of that forgiveness does not arrive until repentance is had on the part of the offender. But when that happens, the Christian says, forgiven, debt paid. Now, again, I I, I don't want you to to think that what I'm saying is that anytime someone says they're sorry, that they're necessarily genuine. Supposed to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, right? Have some discernment understand these things. I'm not going to get into the complexities of some of that, but when we're talking about heinous sins and broken trust and patterns of sinful behavior, then we've got to figure out how to set up appropriate boundaries. There are consequences to that sin, but you can say debt paid, forgiven, reconnected in some way. So that we can rebuild that trust. So that when, like, because if you are truly repentant, then we can rebuild that trust. We can rebuild that relationship. We can come back together when that person is truly repentant. So reconciliation, though, like this, this idea of forgiveness, sometimes takes time, doesn't it? And sometimes the relationship is never the same. But it takes time, regardless. It takes time because, again, like think about it this way. If we, if we are sanctified progressively by God in the course of salvation as we're reconciled to him, so too we are sort of sanctified in our relationships when they come back together after having sin in them. But usually what we mean by forgiveness is, like I said, it's a it's a light thing almost it's an emotional thing perhaps it's more of a change in emotion than it is a commitment to actually pursue reconciliation perhaps perhaps though we should look at god as the example and go reconciliation how do i how do i walk in that how do i how do i love those who hate me how do i how do i do that these are the questions you should be asking I'm going to leave you with a lot of questions today because I want you to be introspective. I want you to consider these things. I want you to think, how can I love? Let me say this about love. Love is a choice, not an emotion. Lots of people think of love as an emotion. It's not. It is something you choose to do. And sometimes you have to choose to do it every single moment of every single day because it's so hard to love that other person. It's so hard to think about doing something kind to them. Man, it's hard but it's a choice and you can make it. God has given you the freedom to be able to make that choice to love. And so I encourage you today to love like God loves. Love the sinner, the one who is unrepentant even, such that, you would pray for them. Pray for their repentance, by the way. I don't know if I've said this loudly enough. Pray for the repentance of those sinners because that is their highest good. You, like, love means desiring that person's highest good. What is their highest good? A relationship with God, being able to love him and, and glorify him rightly. So pray for their sanctification, pray for their salvation. That's first and foremost. If you don't do that for the people who have hurt you, start today. Pray for the people who have hurt you. Pray that God would bless them with conviction for sin and that he would forgive them from what they've done. You might be, I don't know, ho- hopefully I've, I've covered a lot of this, but maybe you're asking, like, how can, I, how can I bear suffering? How can I choose to forgive even when the other person doesn't repent? What are some strategies, Greg, like, Help me out, right? How do I walk away from here and like actually do something different? Like you've given me a lot of questions to ask, but I need strategies. All right, I have a couple of things. To be honest with you, like there are people who have spoken better on these things and, and, and more completely, but I, I just have a few that I want you to consider as we, as we kind of close out here today. First, remember that you too are a sinner, that you sinned against God and he forgave you. And so there, is, there should be forgiveness for anyone who repents. If they come to you and say, hey, I'm sorry, you're contrite, brokenhearted, over their sin, forgiven. How do you forgive? It's that, it's, I say it's that simple. It's not that simple, but there you go. Have pity. You know you're a sinner. You know you've hurt other people if you think that you haven't hurt someone else in the course of your life, <laughs> like, you're probably deceiving yourself. Where is it? 1 John says that if we, if we say we have no sin, then we are liars. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, if you don't mind, says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We can stop there. Came into the world to save sinners. Remember that you're a sinner too. How else can you, can you get through this? How can you push through? How do you, how do you choose to love? We look at Christ's example again on the cross. Consider what he did. Consider what was happening there. The most heinous sin in all of the universe happening right then and there. I can say that with absolute confidence. This was the son of God, God, the son, being crucified by sinful men, having done nothing wrong, tortured, having done absolutely no wrong, not just innocent of the crime he was accused of, but being absolutely and completely innocent and then crucified by these men. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Look to Christ's example. Even if it's a broken prayer, even if it's a hard prayer, pray that prayer and I guarantee you that God will begin to change your heart. Sometimes we harbor these bitter, resentful feelings in our hearts but we need to take that step and go, I'm going to resist the temptation to be bitter and angry and I'm going to pray for those who curse me. Thirdly, I, I would say you should trust in God's justice. When you think about how we deal with these things, and I talked about pity earlier. You should have pity and compassion about these things. Like when, when someone is a sinner and they, they sin against you, have pity on them because they, they're doing something that's, that's bad, evil, wrong against you and God. Like, have pity on them. Why? Why would you have pity? Because God's justice is coming. You can put on a compassionate heart when you realize that their sin will only be paid for in one of two ways. Be paid for on the cross if they repent and trust in Christ. Or it will be paid for in eternal hell. Whatever you do here and now to get back at them, to, to find some way to, to be repaid, pales in comparison to the torture that they are going to receive. Have pity on them. Maybe that'll help you to love them despite their sin. Romans 12 19 says, Never avenge yourselves, beloved. Instead, Give place to wrath, for it has been written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, said the Lord. Every sin is paid for one of two ways, on the cross or in eternal hell. Finally, I would encourage you, and this is sort of a summary of the thing, to walk in love, choose to walk in love. First Peter 4.8 says... Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. When you love another person, often you're willing to forbear a lot. I know Ashley does with me. I don't know if your spouses and significant others and things like that bear with you, but I would say our love covers a multitude of sins. She's willing to bear with me because she knows that I don't intentionally hurt her and and if there is a, a moment where I lash out and I'm angry and I, and I shouldn't be, I know that I can come to her and ask for forgiveness and that she'll forgive me because of that love that she has for me. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so really like the main point of this, this whole message is that it's not about forgiveness. It's about choosing to love. It's about choosing to love even the most wretched of sinners. And look, again, I, I, I want to drive this home. A lot of people believe that, that forgiveness is momentary or it's just sort of instantaneous. But often, for the forgiver, for the one doing the forgiving, it's a daily choice. And that's okay. Like this is a progress sort of thing. It's a process that you need to be in. Right? You may forgive someone in a moment, And that's a wonderful thing. But there may be sins that have been committed against you that it will take years for you to truly walk in love without having to make that conscious choice every time. But make the conscious choice. Make the conscious choice. Because God loved you so much that he sent Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, to die on the cross for your sins. Man, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of people that preach a, a therapeutic forgiveness, something that sort of only happens, internally. It's more of a change of heart and a change of mind, than it is anything, other than it, it's it's not love. It's just a, I'll just let it go. So I don't I don't want to ask you, today, who do you need to forgive? I think that's a good question. Don't get me wrong. I think the better question though is who do you need to love? That's a hard question. That's a hard question. It's a hard question for me. I think that it's a hard question for all of us I I would imagine. But consider how God loved you even in the depths of sin. He bore with you. He did good for you. And then finally reconciled himself to you when you came to him in repentance. That's the sort of open heart we need to have. We need to take a moment and go, I'm willing to love those who hate me. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.